This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode features representations of miscarriage and discussions of institutionalization, domestic violence, and child abuse. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. There were many parts of being a domestic worker that Dion didn't enjoy. Nothing, however, compared to the onerous task of doing the dishes. She hated the slimy film that would coat her hands as she scrubbed someone else's mess off a plate. Her employers, unfortunately, were in the habit of using several dishes when one would have done the job just fine. She wasn't surprised. Brownstone types usually did. So Dion stood in the shaker kitchen, gazing out the window to the small yard behind the apartment building. She scrubbed the plates and tried to ignore the sensation against her hands. It felt like a slug trail of dirt and saliva was eating at her skin. She heard someone clearing their throat behind her. It had to be Mrs. Craig. It was always Mrs. Craig. Dion sometimes wondered how someone who never cleaned for herself could have so many opinions about proper methods of cleaning. Dion asked if Mrs. Craig needed anything. She responded that she wanted to help her dry the dishes. Puzzled, Dion lifted out one porcelain dish. She felt a hand take it. She heard the sounds of a towel against the dish. Then, a staggering crash. She turned around. No one was there. Her uncertainty hung in the air. Then, the rest of the dishes fell off the counter onto the meticulously maintained 19th century wood floor. The pieces lay around her feet, a boneyard of porcelain. She bent down gingerly, picking up a piece of dishware. She dropped it immediately. A bright red gash was spreading across her palm. She cautiously examined her cut hand, standing up slowly. Then, the razor-sharp pieces of porcelain began to levitate, rising to the level of her head. They closed in on her, glinting fiercely in the weak kitchen light. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to New York's House of Death, 
a Greenwich Village brownstone with a dark legacy of evil and violence, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Just beyond Washington Square Park, between 5th and 6th Avenue in New York City, sits the mid-19th century Greek Revival brownstone, now known as New York's House of Death. The building is said to be haunted by no less than 22 spirits and has been the site of several horrible tragedies. Both guests and residents have described the building as having an evil to it. The supernatural weight grows even heavier when you realize that the building is at the very heart of Manhattan's Greenwich Village. Many fans of Marvel Comics know Greenwich Village as the location of Doctor Strange's iconic home, the Sanctum Santorum. It's no wonder Marvel's writers chose this neighborhood for this character. When the hero was created in the early 60s, it would have been no surprise to see a man walking down the street in a full-length cape. But the village also has a deeper appeal for a master of the mystic arts. The area is steeped in history and legend, and is one of the oldest and strangest neighborhoods in the United States. Before the colonization of North America, the area that would become Greenwich Village was a well-used tobacco field for the Lenape people. In the 1630s, it was turned into a pasture and small settlement by Dutchmen and freed Dutch African slaves who bought Manhattan Island from an unnamed group of Native Americans in exchange for goods reportedly valued at $24. To this day, we still don't have a concrete record of who sold the island that would become known as New Amsterdam. The Dutch didn't see fit to record it, and some historians believe that a rival tribe may have made the sale without actually having a strong claim. Nevertheless, what began as a separate settlement would slowly be incorporated into the massively expanding metropolis we now call New York City. The village has been the center of counterculture and bohemian life in New York since the late 19th century. From the Cafe Society to the Stonewall Inn, the citizens of Greenwich Village have always been boundary pushers, and in some places, boundaries cease to exist at all. Number 14 West 10th Street, the House of Death itself, sits on what might arguably be one of the most haunted blocks in Manhattan. Visitors report seeing spectral women on the street and hearing footsteps on empty sidewalks. Number 14's most famous ghost is author Mark Twain, who lived at the address briefly from 1900 to 1901. A mother and daughter living at the address in the 1930s once found a ghostly Twain in their living room. When they asked why he was there, he replied, My name is Clemens, and I has a problem here I gotta settle. Then, he vanished. But the 21 other spiritual inhabitants of the House of Death are far less forthcoming and far more terrifying. The letter was splattered with brown spots, dried blood. These spots marked the letter's morbid purpose before they'd even opened it. It was from a commander of the Union Army of these United States. Irene knew what it would say. Her father's lips tightened as he read the letter aloud, and she had not been able to tell if he was upset by the news 
or is simply hiding a smile. Her father hated John from the start. He had been displeased when he found out that the couple had eloped, but he was utterly livid when he discovered the reason for the elopement, their baby. Irene tried to persuade her father to rejoice. The child was everything they'd hoped for, a small bright light piercing through the dark clouds of the war. Irene loved John more than life. The war had taken him, but she still remained. The baby still remained. Cocooned inside her body, her child was safe from the violence that had devoured its father. But Irene was not. Her grief was destroying her. Constant pain choked her lungs and tore at her heart. She could withstand the torment of swollen ankles and an aching back, but she could not withstand her grief. Before her father had finished reading, Irene found herself sinking into a chair. Her knees shook with effort and she clutched the arms of the seat. The maid, Catherine, brought her a cloth dipped in water for her head. Irene laughed harshly. Did the maid think soothing her forehead would mend her heart? Catherine stammered an apology and left the room. Irene's father studied her quietly. His lips had not relaxed. She wanted to yell at him. She wanted to yell at the president for starting this war. But in the end, she was too tired to do much of anything. She pressed the cloth to her head and rested her eyes. If she was lucky, she would see John in her dreams. Fate, it appeared, owed her no kindness. John did not come to her in her slumber. Instead, Irene slept in fits and starts as the baby pressed against her churning stomach. She woke at dawn, but could not summon the effort to move from her bed. Catherine opened the curtains for her, but she lay still. The pains continued through the day. She could feel her child's fingernails scraping at her from the inside. Maybe it wanted to get out, but it wasn't time yet. There were months still to go. Everything came too soon. Everything. If John were here, he would soothe her fears and rub her back until she could slide into the world of dreams again. He would put the nightmares back where they came from. But he was gone. Even with her father in the next room, surrounded by servants, Irene felt alone. Pain started to build through her back. At first, it was just another reminder of how broken her body had become. Then came sharper sensations, like she was being struck with some jagged medieval weapon. She clutched at the sheets until her hands glowed white with the effort. By afternoon tea, Irene was swallowing her own screams. The pain was spreading from her back to her front, burning her from the inside. It all became too much. Unconsciousness claimed her. Irene woke to a pain so awful she feared she was being torn in two. She could feel something sticky between her legs, but she was afraid to look. A ball of needles rolled through her stomach, and Irene screamed for Catherine. The maid rushed in immediately. She pulled the sheets away and moaned so deeply it became a scream. 
Irene did not want to look, but she forced herself to glance down. Blood was stuck to her legs, still crimson. Red became black as the world went dark. The next time her eyelids fluttered open, things felt different. She was hollow. The pressure that had been against her bladder for months was gone. The tears that she had managed to hold at bay for John came to her now. She had lost both of them in less than 24 hours. The blood had been wiped from her legs. She asked Catherine where her child was, but the woman simply said that the baby was with God now. Irene's skin felt too warm. The blankets were suffocating her, and the air still smelled of blood. She couldn't breathe. She pushed off the blankets and threw the sheets off the bed. She expected some sort of relief. None came. It was her skin. Her skin was boiling her alive. She tore at it with her nails, trying to rip herself free. Small pieces of flesh came away. Her skin was still too heated. She screamed that she was burning. An icy shiver spilled down her as Catherine poured water over her head. Irene screamed from the shock. She could see steam rising from her skin, and she felt herself cool bit by bit. But it didn't relieve the aching in her body, the weight and darkness that was crushing her. It was the room. She lost things in this room, and now it was trying to take everything else from her. Her legs faltered as she tried to stand. A few spots of blood dripped onto the floor. Irene braced herself against the bed as Catherine protested. Her insides felt like they were still coming loose, ready to slide down her legs at the faintest movement. She bit her lip until it bled to stop herself from crying out again. Her vision blurred as tears filled her eyes. She needed to leave. Whatever was holding her would have to let go if she left. Her whole body started to shiver. She crept towards the door, but as she got close enough to squint through the shadows, she saw something peculiar on the threshold. Her baby was standing there by the open door, just staring at her. His doughy legs barely kept him up, but he looked at her with John's brown eyes and giggled. She didn't notice that he made no sound. Irene could feel pressure building at her chest. Had Catherine lied to her? Did her child survive? She had to get to him. She had to hold him. The last piece of John that was left. He turned silently and began to walk away on tottering legs. Irene followed him towards the front of the house. She could hear Catherine's trailing footsteps and weak protests behind her as she approached the massive parlor window. The baby was silhouetted against the glass, his chubby arms and legs strangely rigid. She was close enough to touch him, to hold him. It frightened and thrilled her. He'd come back to her. She wouldn't ever let him go. 
But as her fingers closed on his tiny little hands, her child vanished. John was outside waiting for her, standing under the street lamp, suitcase in hand, the dust of the road darkening his army uniform. No, it was blood. It still trickled from the wound in his chest and the hole in his cheek. A shrill cry escaped Irene's body. She leapt for the front door, wanting to run to him, needing to run to him. But her hands only found empty air. The doorknob stretched away from her, across an endless void. Still, John stood, waiting, waiting for the love of his life, who would never come. There are no official records of Irene Mallison or her stay at the House of Death, but there's a very intriguing unofficial one. In 1963, a seance was held by paranormal expert Hans Holzer at 14 West 10th Street. This seance is referenced in two different books, Holzer's own Ghosts I've Met, published in 1965, and Jan Brian Bartell's Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea published in 1974. Using Holzer's body as a conduit, a 19-year-old girl, Irene Mallison, shared her story with the guests. She had married against her father's wishes to John J. Mallison, who was then sent to fight in the Civil War. She spoke in fits and starts of a baby buried under the building's floorboards before describing her husband standing outside of the home. She said he was covered in blood, and she could not reach him. Holzer tried to encourage Irene to cross over, but she became upset, saying that she could never leave the house. Her family would have to come to her. Holzer's seance added even more stories to the House of Death's guest log, but in a moment, we'll learn how another tenant gave us the most detailed account of the evil on West 10th Street. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Rent control is woven into the fabric of New York City. Apartments are passed down in families over decades. And in an increasingly gentrified city, rent control is one of the few ways for people to survive. But before Williamsburg became the place to go for hipster haircuts, and Park Slope became the place where you can take your kid to baby DJ school, there was the new Bohemia of Greenwich Village in the 1930s. During this time, the neighborhood felt profoundly alive, and number 14, was converted from a single-family home to a 10-unit apartment building. By the 1950s, the beatniks had moved in, reciting poetry in tiny cafes and filling late-night diners with cigarette smoke and jazz. Despite all that vibrant life, death was just on the other side of the wall. 
and at 14 West 10th Street, the walls were very thin indeed. The floor was covered in a layer of gray dust. Pieces of plaster were cracked and hanging limply from the walls. The curtains were faded and threadbare. Penny had never been more in love. She and her husband, Flynn, had spent months searching for a place in Greenwich Village. And now, at last, they'd found one with character. She would get to live in an apartment with a tangible history. It was all she had ever wanted. A home where the very room she walked could leave her inspired. It had to be hers. As they unpacked their belongings, the house started to take shape, just as she'd imagined it. Her antiques fit right in with the original Victorian fireplace and welcoming arches. The space was coming alive, as though it had been waiting for just the right person to light that spark inside them. She had so many ideas about how to best use the space, and she couldn't slow her fevered thoughts enough to sleep. The moon shone brightly in her bedroom, like a searing white searchlight. But then, a darkness appeared eating at the edges of the moonlight. It was just a wisp at first, but then it began to extend sharp, almost claw-like tendrils through the light. Penny slid back in her bed, certain that she must not let the inky blackness touch her. She knew her husband would only say that the night was falling over their apartment, but she knew better. It was a gaping mouth ready to tear and consume everything in its path. She watched the strange black teeth gnash away at the cold moon before it descended onto her legs, a faceless, inky cloud. There was cold at first, then heat. Unseen tendrils and teeth tore at her flesh, but she did nothing. Strangely, impossibly, it didn't hurt. Instead, she felt hollow, empty, like an abandoned church racked by the elements. She watched with detached fascination as the darkness climbed higher and higher up her leg, tearing her skin to crimson ribbons. She heard their dog awaken from a slumber nearby. It barked madly in Penny's direction. The darkness shifted, floating towards the dog. It considered the creature for a minute, and then slipped back outside. The dog followed, staring out the lone window into the now still night. Penny looked down at her legs. Her pale skin was pristine beneath the moon. There was no blood. She touched her thigh gingerly. There was no pain. She breathed deeply, trying to find her center, but then, a wave of emotion hit her like a hurricane. Despair, disappointment, anger, sadness. They swirled together inside her. They came out in terrified screams and harsh, violent sobs. No matter how desperately she tried, she couldn't keep them inside. Her husband woke up. He told her it was just a bad dream. He didn't care that she hadn't been asleep. Penny wondered if he cared about anything. With a drowsy kiss on her forehead, he lay back down. Penny spent the rest of the night watching the spot of moonlight on the wall 
praying for daybreak. In the morning, she opened her bleary eyes and peered beneath the covers. Her leg was whole, but there was something wrong about it now. A coldness that couldn't be dispelled by heat or blankets. She could feel a moving shape beneath the skin. That darkness had left something inside her. She could feel it growing. Flynn told her she needed a break. She could spend the day lounging around, maybe read a few novels. She nodded agreeably, playing the silly housewife. She didn't want to give him any reason to send her away again. She was of sound mind. She would do as he asked for a while, waiting for the darkness to come to him. It couldn't just be hungry for one body. Eventually, it would want another. Penny draped herself artfully on the antique chaise and read from a stack of poetry books. When the words began to swim on the page, she placed the book down and got her first full bout of sleep in nearly 20 hours. There was a spider inside her eye when she woke up. Horrified, she reached up, but it skittered away, only to appear on the other side of her vision moments later. Her screams echoed through the empty house. Then it was gone. She looked left and right. She wanted to relax, but had a sneaking suspicion that it was only hiding from her, having crawled to the very back of her eye socket, waiting. Penny called her husband on the phone and told him about the creature that had somehow found itself inside her eye. She did not share with him her own suspicions that it came from the same place the darkness had. He rushed home. Soon after his return, there was a doctor at the front door. Her spider was a series of burst blood vessels. The doctor claimed that it could happen with stress. Night fell. She slid into bed. Her husband repeated his mantra that she had nothing to worry about. They had everything they could ever want here. She wanted to tell him that the monsters would come for him soon enough. But he was already snoring beside her, without a care in the world. The moonlight shone down, unaware of the impending doom. Penny waited with the comforter clutched tightly to her chest, sure that the night would swallow it whole. It never did. As the last vestiges of night burned away, Penny finally drifted off to sleep. Her husband was gone when she woke up. She studied her alarm clock. It couldn't be noon. If it was noon, she should be able to see her furniture. Instead, they stood, like shadowy soldiers up against the wall. The room was dark and seemed to shrink before her eyes. She jumped up and ran to the curtains, nearly tearing them off the bar as she threw them open. But no light came inside. Penny ran towards the door. The handle wouldn't budge. She pushed her weight against it. Nothing happened. She banged her fist against it. The aged oak had captured her heart a few short weeks ago. Now, it felt more like a coffin. 
wraiths materialized from the walls. Their clothes tattered, their heads widening into hungry voids. Penny screamed for help. They did not answer. Her heart thumped faster and faster. The dark creatures seemed to glint as they circled her. She suddenly realized they were holding jagged shards of glass in their long white fingers. Penny tried to crawl further away, but her body wouldn't respond. Cold froze her joints, choking her lungs. The wraiths came towards her, raising the sharp glass high over their heads. She screwed her eyes shut, unwilling to look death in the eye. One by one, she felt the glass bite into her skin. Blood stained the quilt she'd received as a wedding gift. The monsters pulled the blades free to begin again. She grew woozy from the blood loss. She had to escape, or this would be the end of her. Penny tried to open her eyes, but there was a leaden weight on top of them. They would not budge. She screamed for someone, anyone, to rescue her. The door flew open. His yelling gave him away. Flynn, her husband. He grabbed Penny by the arms, and she screamed in response. The pain was burning through her body, but he didn't seem to notice the jagged pieces of glass that peppered her skin like freckles. Fighting against their weight, Penny managed to get just one eyelid open. There was a jagged piece of glass, but it wasn't sticking out of her limbs. It was plunged into her chest by her own hands. The most comprehensive look at life on 14 West 10th Street can be found in the book Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea by Jan Bryant Bartell. The actress and poet moved into the former servants' quarters of the Brownstone in 1957. She remained there for several years. In that time, she believed herself to be haunted noon and night by visions of darkness, wraiths, and gore. She would eventually change houses, but the hauntings would continue. Bartel committed these experiences to paper. Shortly after finishing her manuscript, she died. The method and cause of her death remain a mystery, concealed by her grieving family. Some people believe that Bartel was dealing with an untreated mental illness that resulted in suicide. Others, however, think that whatever had been haunting her for years finally got the upper hand. As for Bartel, she saw the house as the origin of the horrors that would follow her for the rest of her life, writing, I should have known when first I climbed that broad, creaking staircase. Today, it appears that Bartel's spirit never left the building. Speaking to the New York Post, one resident mentioned that he picked up a copy of Spindrift many years ago. Since then, he's had to buy nine more copies. They have a strange habit of disappearing within his apartment. Up next, we'll see how the dark energy that seems to waft about the house of death would get even darker. 30 years after Jan Brian Bartell first stepped into 14 West 10th Street. Now, back to the story. While the first half of the 20th century had been kind to New York, the 1960s and 70s were not. 
During this time, the city began the first of its many struggles to maintain deteriorating infrastructure, resulting in repeated citywide blackouts. Working-class neighborhoods in the outer boroughs were often neglected by the corrupt NYPD, leading to a proliferation of the drug trade and street violence. Central Park became impassably dangerous at night, and Times Square was the center of sex work in the city. Wall Street would change everything. The economic speculation of the 1980s led to cautious optimism for the upper class, and Mayor Ed Koch believed that the way to combat crime was to use the growing wealth of white-collar workers to fuel gentrification. But both those workers and higher education institutions in the city flocked to southern Manhattan. Since it first relocated to the village, New York University has been in a constant push-pull with Greenwich purists over how much property they can acquire. By the late 80s, the area around 14 West 10th Street was in high demand. But a bright economic future can't entirely overcome the shadow of a dark past. Tripp was a family man. He prided himself on it, breaking out his kids' pictures at parties, displaying his wedding portrait proudly on his desk, so he could look back and forth between the view from his 44th floor office window and his beautiful Sarah without a second thought. He brought them to company picnics. He played Santa at the Christmas party. Everyone knew that when Tripp left at 5.01, it was because he needed to be home with his family. They just had their second child, after all. Clara was doing surprisingly well as she adjusted to her new baby brother, and little Patrick was a dream. Then, they weren't his family anymore. He wasn't sure when or how it began. It might have been the dark shape he thought he saw floating over his bed one night. But that had just been sleep paralysis. His physician had confirmed it. Maybe it was the screaming. Patrick had been perfect until the earache. The infuriating earache that made him howl morning, noon, and night. Sarah was still recovering from her C-section, so he tried to be helpful. But there was only so much he could do. The only thing that seemed to help was a walk. Patrick didn't cry, or rather he cried less when he was moving. So Tripp walked up and down their apartment hallway, from the back windows to the front. He bounced him gently in his arms, humming every song he knew, convincing him, hoping, praying he was all right. But it always began again. Tripp's numbers at work were falling. The whispers when he left at 5.01 grew louder. Even when the ear infections seemed to have cleared up, Patrick was still screaming. It wasn't his attention cry either. He didn't want food or milk or need his diaper changed. He wanted comfort. He was insatiable for it. Sometimes as Tripp walked the halls, he turned a dark corner and wondered what Patrick was afraid of what he thought was waiting out there, beyond the window glass. When he did sleep, Tripp dreamed of glass. Window and mirrors all shattered, broken bricks on the ground, bleeding fingers. And there was crying. 
so much crying. Clara continued to be Daddy's perfect little girl. She was doing well in first grade, and was even excited to do her little worksheets when she came home for the day. It had been a stroke of genius for Sarah to tell Clara she could listen to her Walkman as long as she wanted when it was time for bed. It kept her from hearing her brother. And all it cost them was a Tiffany tape, which would probably need to be replaced in the next six months. But then, Clara started screaming too. Every night, without fail, she had a nightmare. Several, actually, filled with many different monsters, all lurking in the walls or out the window. Tripp and Sarah tried to reason with her. They walked her outside in her little Care Bear nightgown, showing her there was no one waiting to get her. They tried nightlights and imaginary monster sprays, but all Clara would talk about was the darkness and the mirrors. Someone was watching, she said. Someone was always watching. He began letting Clara walk with him at night. He gave her a flashlight and told her that she could catch the monsters red-handed. She liked the game for a night or two, but on day three, she told him the monsters were too quick for her. They always knew where to hide. So back to her room, Clara went, and Tripp was alone again. Or at least, he thought he was. He swore he could hear someone else walking in the apartment. He listened above and below, but heard nothing. He told himself he was delirious from lack of sleep, and who could blame him if he was? It took four to five hours to get Patrick to bed, and he only slept about three before getting hungry. He'd finally gotten the baby into his crib when he saw a dark shape appear on the threshold. It was Clara, nervously clutching her flashlight. There was someone in her bedroom, she said. He tried to tell her it was him walking earlier, but she shook her head, eyes wide. He tried to hide his sigh as he put his hand gently on her back to usher her back down the hall with him. Clara's bedroom door had usually been left open before the nightmare started, but by now she talked constantly about her room being the only refuge, her one safe place. Tripp was proud of her for coming out of it at night at all. He softly pushed Clara to keep her even with his pace, but she was quickly lagging behind him clutching at the back of his plaid pajama shirt. They neared the door. Tripp readied the flashlight, indicating to his daughter that he'd turn it right on as they opened it. The monsters wouldn't suspect a thing. Clara nodded, her hands balled up in little fists, and she was shaking. Tripp crouched down next to her and reminded her of their family mantra, no one is alone. Clara nodded again, a tentative smile blinked across her face before vanishing behind her general anxiety. Tripp squeezed her arm gently and opened the door. For all his promised heroics, it probably took him a full ten seconds to switch the flashlight on. The bright beam roved across the room, highlighting the toys, videotapes, dress-up clothes, and books. Finally, it landed on Clara's beautiful princess bed,
Clara was sleeping in it. Or was it something that looked like Clara? No, that didn't make sense. He blinked again. The girl was still there, sucking your thumb in her sleep. He took a deep breath. He could still feel tiny hands clutching at his shirt. Slowly, slowly, he panned the beam back towards the hallway until it settled on Clara again. Daddy, she asked, eyes big and innocent, though the shadows around them seemed darker than they should be. Many visitors and former residents have described 14 West 10th Street as having a dark presence, something heavy, watching and waiting, changing form on a dime. Many of the tales of the building are apocryphal, but the darkest chapter in the so-called House of Death's history is heavily documented, down to the most disturbing detail. It is the story of the death of Lisa Steinberg. On November 2, 1987, six-year-old Lisa Steinberg was brought into New York's St. Vincent's Hospital with cuts and bruises all over her body. She was hemorrhaging, and doctors were unable to save her. Lisa had been left unattended on the bathroom floor of 14 West 10th Street for over eight hours after her adoptive father, now disbarred criminal defense attorney Joel Steinberg, had hit her so hard that she collapsed. Lisa's adoptive mother, Hedda Nussbaum, was in another room along with her infant brother, Mitchell. Hedda would later tell investigators that Joel had said he would get Lisa up when he got back from seeing some friends for dinner and drugs. The couple frequently freebased cocaine together. Hedda, who also showed signs of massive physical abuse, told the court that she didn't want to show disloyalty or distrust to Steinberg. Upon Steinberg's return and failed attempts to revive the child, she finally called 911. Joel Steinberg had illegally adopted Lisa after promising her 19-year-old birth mother that he would find the girl a good home, presenting her with falsified documents, saying that the little girl had gone to a wealthy city attorney. It was Nussbaum's battered state and Steinberg's odd behavior when Lisa was brought to the hospital that captured the imagination of the New York press. When her doctors explained to Steinberg that Lisa would have permanent brain damage if she survived, Steinberg responded, Well, what you're saying is that she's not going to be an Olympic athlete, but she'll survive. At the trial, one doctor told the jury that Steinberg had a big grin on his face as he watched Lisa fight for her life. His reaction, coupled with the inaction by New York's child services, despite numerous reports from neighbors and home visits, made the case a massive story. Steinberg's trial was one of the first court proceedings to be broadcast for television. The death of Lisa Steinberg is ultimately a tale of a horrifying abuser and sprawling civil services who were unable to act quick enough to save her. But the fact that it occurred at 14 West 10th Street is hard to disregard. Even if you don't believe the building was haunted before then, it's hard to escape such a terrible history. Deep suffering leaves scars, even on wood and stone. 
we don't really know when the House of Death obtained its sinister moniker. Everyone seems to have a story about the 22 spirits that occupy the West Village brownstone. From a chatty Mark Twain to a lady in white, a young child, and a gray cat. But it's the darker moments, the concrete ones, that make it difficult to deny the House of Death its name. It's rare for a person to feel alone in a city of 8.6 million people, but on West 10th Street, perhaps that's a good thing. If you never think you're alone, you won't realize someone or something is watching you. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the House of Death, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jan Brian Bartell's Spindrift Spray from a Psychic Sea extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>